are good. Father, we have many, many reasons to be thankful that you have communicated to us, that you have revealed yourself to us. You've not remained silent. We thank you that your word is a true treasure because it teaches us of you. It helps us understand how we can know you, how we can grow in you, how we can make you known, how we can see your glory spread abroad and gives us words of hope for the future. And Lord, as we look into this passage of scripture, uh, we pray that you would help your spirit to guide us, that we would understand the things that are helpful and appropriate for us to be challenged to be hearing and also be encouraged. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your word uh, does apply to everyday life. It's not just theoretical. It has to do with our hearts as well as our feet and our hands and uh, seeing it carried out in everyday life. So, Lord, have your way among us, we pray, as we look in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we sort of pushed the pause button in our study in the book of Acts. We slowed down and noticed and considered one phrase from chapter 4 of Acts. If you have your Bible, find that uh, passage, if you will, Acts chapter 4, where we found this very interesting phrase. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we noted in looking at this phrase that the term refers to a condition of being under the influence of the Spirit of God. And we tried to talk a little bit last week about what does that look like? What is the result of living a life under the influence or dominance of the Holy Spirit? Well, we noticed that there's also teaching in the New Testament that contrasts it with life being lived under the control of alcohol. And, uh, and interesting to notice that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul selects one word that gives us the contrast of what it means for a group of people to live their life under the, under the control of alcohol. He uses the word uh, dissipation. He uses the word in some translations debauchery. It also means brokenness or, or disorder. It means to what? To a ruined life. For those who live under the control of a substance that what? Leads to people being out of control. And so having a group of people live that kind of life would lead to what? Disorder, to division, to, to destroying anything that is a sense of building up together. It would actually destroy those kinds of bonds. And so now we're contrasting that kind of reality with what the church of Jesus Christ in its infancy, in its earliest years, was characterized by. It's the opposite of that. Here's a group of people living under the control of the Holy Spirit. And what do we see among them? We see, first of all, that they are people who are worshiping God, who are uh, making melody in their hearts to God. It comes right from their heart. They just cannot praise God enough and thank Him enough. We also see them as being speaking to each other in ways that edify each other, that they are using the opportunities to speak, uh, showing respect, and they defer to each other. They're not the person that has to be in control of everything. They're actually willing to give and yield themselves to the preference of other people around them. And lastly, we understand that one of the characteristics of people living under the power of the Spirit of God is that they are boldly proclaiming the gospel and the good news of Christ to unbelievers. So what we have this morning then in our text is to pick up right from where we were last week 
in verse 31. Now we're going to pick up in verse 32 and proceed to the end of the chapter, which I must remind you is another unfortunate and not very helpful chapter division. This should run right into chapter 5. It really flows that way, but I'm going to break because I can't um, cover both topics in one sermon. But what we have, I'd like to read verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what we find in this passage this morning, I would like to suggest to you, is a wonderful glimpse into the dynamics of a grace-filled fellowship. A fellowship where the grace of God is being celebrated and lived out. The gospel is being impacting people's hearts in such a way in which they are changing the way they normally would deal with other people. It not only affects uh, their conversations and their attitudes, but it changes even their practical ways of ministering to each other. Let's follow along here as we find in this particular passage three features of this kind of grace-filled fellowship that's based on the gospel. The first thing we want to notice is the demographics of this fellowship. The demographics, that means who's, who's the makeup of the group. What kind of people are in this dynamic growing, vibrant congregation. Well, many of them, if you look in the text of Acts 2 and realize this is still all in Jerusalem, we know that these people are out-of-towners. These people have come from long distances away. They have traveled from Galilee and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia, and it goes on and on, all these other towns along the Mediterranean, uh, north, south, east, and west. And we also know that they are men and women, Many of them spoke different languages, although they had some languages in common with each other. Some are well off, some are rather poor and destitute. Perhaps some of those who had been a part of the church because of their loyalty to Christ had become now be, no longer able to continue their job. They had perhaps been fired because of their commitment to Christ. But what we can say about the group is they're a diverse group. They're not all cookie cutter the same. They don't all wear the same clothes and speak the same way and look the same. They're a diverse group. And yet look at what's described about them. Verse 32, it says they're one heart and of one soul. What an interesting phrase. They are a people who are enjoying a strong tie of fellowship, of belonging to one another. And this kind of bonds of unity are not due to the clever management of the apostles and somehow bringing about, because of their skills and abilities to, to, to have group dynamics, they have somehow woven these people together. No, this is what God has done by His Spirit. This is what the gospel does. And so this kind of 
unified togetherness was something the Holy Spirit had brought about. Some of us were gathered here on Wednesday night and we've been looking at discipleship and we noticed a very interesting observation of A.W. Tozier, uh, the great pastor of uh, the last generation. And he made the illustration, the point, he says, if you take a hundred pianos and you tune those pianos to one tuning fork, then all of those pianos now are going to be in agreement with each other. They're going to be all on the same page, all playing the same uh, tune to, the, to each other, and they're going to be of one accord. Why? Because they all share the same one standard. And that's what's happened here in this, in this church. The Holy Spirit's ministry has brought them all into the same standard of dealing with God on the basis of grace. Now they're dealing with each other on the basis of grace. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring us into loving fellowship with God and with loving fellowship with each other of precious faith. Notice also, not only were they diverse, they were a regenerate membership. A regenerate membership. What do we mean by that? Look at verse 32 again. Congregation of those who believed. Who believed. They had repented of their sin. They had understood that their offenses against God were many and they had begun to turn away from those and their attitude had changed toward that. They had placed their faith in Christ, in Jesus, the Messiah, the one who died, the one who was raised in new power. And they were not merely attenders of this congregation. They were members of the body of Christ because they had been joined by faith to Christ. And now they had also joined with each other in a way in which they have identified themselves as I am one of this group, this body. I've been counted. They're brothers and sisters in the family of God. And they're mutually sharing these abundant grace from God. Look at verse 33. Abundant grace was upon them all. Isn't that true of any group of true believers? Abundant grace is upon us all. You think about the unmerited favor God shows us, giving us the gift of free and full forgiveness, giving us the gift of being adopted as his children forever, giving us the blessing of knowing that we're made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We who had nothing to offer him, we who come impoverished spiritually, we come destitute, without righteousness, without anything to offer God. And he says, no, I'm going to give you all of my inheritance in Christ. You share in it. It's all yours. What abundant, abundant grace upon them all. Each one was equally blessed. Equally blessed. Equally enriched. Equally loved by God. None was more important or more valuable in the eyes of God than another one. They shared in the life of God. They shared their lives and their resources because why? They're a community of believers who have been knit together by God in a specific local church. And notice the evidence there that these believers were identified as being a part of this church. Notice verses 34 and 35. The indicators are right there. There was not a needy person among them all. Who's the all there? Among every person in Jerusalem? No, among the what? The congregation, those who have been identified as we are a part of this particular local body of Christ. Notice the word all, as he says there in verses, uh, he says in verse 34, 35, 
they would lay them at the disciples' feet and they would be distributed to each as they had need, to each one, each one in the church who had a need. It's clear that there is an obvious identified number of people who have said, we are a part of this group. We've committed to it. We have made ourselves known that we are followers of Christ and we are now part of this group. And you notice that when that happens, it's not just a uh, group of people who do whatever they want to do. There's a sense of organization. There's a sense of authority that's already been put as part of the structure there. The earliest part of church leadership there, you'll notice they're under authority. It says that they laid these gifts at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. There were those in the church not only cared for by the fellow members, but they were, it was a process that was governed by those in leadership. It's interesting how in some churches uh, people like to give gifts and have their gift given, but they want to make sure that gift gets accomplished what they want to do. You ever had a gift like that? I remember next, uh, years ago we were in a church in Virginia, and if I heard it once, I heard it 500 times. Well, my grandparents gave the property for this church. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that was a wonderful thing to do. and We're thankful for that. What does it have to do with what's going on right now? It was as if that person was saying, we have an inside clout. We have more significant involvement and membership, and our opinion should be more valuable than other people. Why? Because somebody gave something that was, in a sense, a gift that gave them power or some sort of respect or some sort of honor that might be beyond other people. But no, when you have a gift like here, they're just laying it at the feet of the leaders. If you're part of a local church, it is a family of believers, but we are under authority. And you'll notice in Hebrews chapter 13, 17, it says what? Obey your leaders. You can't have leaders unless you're a part of that group. Unless you're a member, you have no leaders. They're not yours. And so there's a sense in which this group of people who are saved by God's grace, they are celebrating that grace and they are now celebrating the fact that they've been made one. They are definitely a close-knit family. Under authority, diverse, yes, blessed, absolutely. And they are a people who are regenerated. These are the characteristics of a spirit-led congregation. Diverse, unified, regenerate, mutually blessed, and organized. Are you part of a church? Are you a member? Have you joined? Can you say that I'd... I, by the Spirit of God, have been led also into a similar kind of arrangement that I can join with the people of God and be identified with God's people in a local place. If you're a Christian, that's God's will for you. And we invite you to do so. Secondly, I want to notice there's an interesting, very interesting number of uh, verses here that deal with the demonstration. The demonstration of a fellowship who is filled with grace, how this fellowship expresses and de demonstratively the gospel being lived out among them. See, being a member of a local church is more than just merely professing faith in Christ. That is the, that's the first step. And that's, the, that's obviously the first requirement. But it also involves the practical demonstrations of that faith in Christ being lived out in the context of a local church, a community. Notice how these believers lived out their commitment to each other. Verse 32, he says, 
not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, some of you may be scratching your head saying, wait a minute, that sounds a little strange. That sounds a little communistic. Is that really an example of what that is um, involved? Well, clearly that's not the case. Because you'll notice in this situation, there's no indicator at all in the text that anyone is being coerced. There's no one being forced and, and mandated that you must share your resources with somebody else. There was no rule made up along those lines by the leadership. They were not involved in any kind of an imposed system of redistribution. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, no one in the church ever renounced all of their private property. You say, how do you know that? Well, the key word there, I think, in verse 32 is the word claimed. No one claimed that these things were only, only their own. That is, it has to do with the way in which they viewed their own possessions. And if you have further evidence, I would just say, again, they continued to own property. If you look at chapter 12, verse 12 of Acts, you'll notice that they talk about the house of someone and so, you know, whatever. People had their own property, they had their own things, but they were willing to sell whatever they had as needed and then make the donation to the needs of others in the church. So I would like to suggest this pattern of being willing to share is what he's not saying here is that this is a condemnation of all wealth. That's a strong position that many people are following in today's world is to say, well, all wealth must be condemned. But that's never taught in the scriptures. Now, what scriptures do say is, and by the way, wealth is a relative term, isn't it? I am a wealthy person. Compared to most of the third world, I am the rich person in the world, right? But you say, well, compared to Gates, you know, or Bezos is however you say his name, the guy in charge of Amazon.com. What some of these other people, big corporations, you're nothing. You're very little. No, but based on what? Rich is a relative term, wealthy. But notice the Bible never condemns wealth per se. It warns about the dangers of wealth and one's attitude toward wealth. That's yes, there are many warnings about that, how it might impact one spiritually. But what I want to look at in this text is to notice that what's taking place in this church, as one commentator said, is a solidarity of love. A solidarity of love. A sharing of their material goods was the outward expression of their union of their hearts and their minds. And this outworking of the gospel is indeed grace that's now being worked out among them in a very beautiful way. They viewed their resources in a radically new way. Not the normal way that you would tend to think of your, your possessions. Rather than claiming that all they had belonged to them, they had cultivated now an attitude that says that God owned all of their possessions. They've acknowledged that that is really the proper way of viewing their situation. And that all of their assets are entrusted to them, and therefore they are stewards of the things that God has blessed them with. And therefore they make their material goods that have been entrusted to them, they make available to those who need them. And the example they're using here is Barnabas, also known as Joseph, that's his real name. But they gave him a nickname because why? Because he was a person who was just 
so characterized by encouraging other people, by affirming them, helping them. It was Barnabas who really was not really that well off, I think. If you, if you do some of your research, he was a Levite. Levites prior to the beginning of the New Covenant were people who couldn't own property. I think that he probably may have inherited some property and uh, from his parents perhaps. I don't know where he would have gotten it, but there was property back in Cyprus, but he probably was not a very well-off man. And I think what he probably said was, listen, this property, although I'm blessed to have it, it's probably the most valuable thing in my life. I'm willing to part with it if there's people around me who are in need. I think he sticks his neck out and says, listen, his large heart, his concern about other people was identified as being a friend of the needy. Well, I, he is clearly contrasted in this text. We can't get into the contrast this morning, but they'll be contrasted next week as we get into chapter 5, and we'll deal with that, hold that just right there. But clearly, the, the, Luke is doing this on purpose. He's saying, here's an excellent example of generosity and of one who is earnestly and sincerely wanting to share with others in need. And then we'll have another example next week of the opposite of that. But I find it interesting that the gospel creates this new way of thinking, that, that what, what we tend to think of as ours, that we say, well, listen, didn't I buy all this stuff? Isn't it mine? Answer is what? No, it's not all yours, that everything you have has been entrusted to you by the one who owns everything, and that is God. That kind of thinking changes radically what you do with the things that are entrusted to you. It leads to the adoption of a mindset that says we are what? We're managers of everything that God has entrusted to us. Now, I've been trying to think of an example of how that works. Let's look at it this way. When I was growing up, I'm blessed to live, into a, live in a house uh, that was uh, paid for with a mortgage that I'm sure my dad paid on many years. Uh, my mother and father made sure that all of the things we needed in our family was purchased and provided to me. So here I am growing up in this home. I have two brothers and a sister. And so we're all there together as a family. Now listen, when there's a problem in our home, let's, let's say all of us got hungry. It's time to eat. Now, when we went in the kitchen, we didn't open a cabinet that said dad's food, mom's food, Mark's food, his sister's food, his brother's food. It wasn't like everybody was on their own. What did we do? We lived under the management of the one who owned the place, and we said what? We're able to share these things when there's a common need. And the power went off, and it did many times growing up, I remember. And it would get cold in the house, and so we'd go and make a fire in the fireplace. Now, do we say, hey, you can't come with it. This is my fireplace. You go get your own firewood and get your own fireplace. No, there was common need. We shared the resources we had together. And so the similar kind of thing I think is happening here among the members of this church is they realize we are members of one another. We're all in the same family here. And therefore, there's the sharing of resources that are all entrusted to us by God. And therefore, we respond by taking specific action. And so love is being demonstrated among these people. Love is not stingy. Love is not greedy. Love delights in sharing. Love celebrates selfless giving. 
And I assure you there's nowhere in this text in Acts 4 of any indication that the people were giving these things out of some sort of compulsion, out of some sort of requirement, out of some sort of guilt, out of some sort of uh, any kind of compulsion of forced by someone else on them or threat. It's done out of what? A heart of gratefulness to God. They are so thankful to God for the blessings they have and for their brothers and sisters who are now a part of this wonderful, growing, dynamic church. I want to take your, invite you to look at your notes one again, the sermon notes in your bulletin, and have you look on the back of the sheet again. This is two weeks in a row. I don't know, I've got a pattern going on here, but I just did this study on this. I found this in my reading. Uh, there's, a, there's a term that is used in the New Testament to, to translate the word fellowship. Fellowship. And the term is translated a number of ways. It has a number of different uh, um, depths of meaning to it, if you will, and breadth of application to it. But I want us to look at, notice this chart, that oftentimes the word fellowship, koinonia is the word there, uh, is the actual Greek word. It means more than just have things where you have talked to each other and you have shared some uh, communication and you have some uh, you know, fellowship together that way. No, fellowship is much more significant. It means what? That there's a giving and a sharing of yourself, including your material goods. So every example in this list is a sharing of material goods with other Christians in the context of their family life in Christ. Look at the last one. I'll just make, use that as an illustration. In the context here in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews challenges the brothers and sisters there in Christ. In the verse before it comes to this one, verse 15, he says, Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give praise to his name, vertically. Offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he follows that with verse 16 where he says what? And encourage your fellow believers in what? Giving grateful worship in the fruit of your lives, in what you do horizontally, and he says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, koinonia, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. See, the gospel is a dynamic unifier. It's a motivator for us to what? To respond out of the love and the gift that we've received from Christ. Now we want to give that love and give to others around us out of love. It is Christ who let go of his riches, who became poor, in order that we who are poor might become rich in honor, in privilege, in status before God on the basis of faith. And we who are blessed, we have many reasons to be thankful and grateful to God, don't we? Think about his love for us. We are, in light of his love, we are to love our brothers and sisters, not only in word, but also in deed, it says. And so in the first century, what did they do? Some of them had large plots of land, some kind of land they, weren't, they, they didn't need those, that land. Uh, others had houses, they would sell those houses, and they brought the proceeds and said, here, share it as there are needs among the body here. Many of us are tremendously blessed. We have extra money in the bank. We're not just living as day-wage people who are surviving, looking for the next day's income because of we're working on that. We have things that we've saved up. Many of us have garages. We have basements that are jammed full of stuff, resources, things that have usefulness to them. 
closets that are jammed full of things that we rarely use, really don't really need. And love will compel us, I believe, at times to say, listen, there are those who are in need, and so we're not just going to talk about it. We're going to do something about it. Love is going to give. Love will share. Love gives away what we cannot ultimately keep. For years and years, this church has been demonstrating a kind of spirit-evidenced, demonstrable love with the membership of this church through tangible ways, quiet ways, unpretentious ways through our Benevolent Fund. The Benevolent Fund is not funded by our budget. That means the general gifts that come through the weekly offerings that funds the budget. Whatever we, we agreed as a church that we will uh, commit to paying for and supporting. But the Benevolent Fund comes from people who specifically give gifts just for that fund beyond what they give in their tithes and offerings weekly in the church. And the fund is... Uh, is specifically over the oversight of the elders. And we as elders distribute it to individuals and families that we learn of who are in need for practical assistance. And I wish you could hear the long ways in which that fund has helped people over the years with car repairs, doctor bills or medicine bills, groceries, electric bills, We've bought people gift cards for gasoline to try to help them make sure they can get to work because we know they have to continue to be employed, paying oil bills, a host of other practical ways in which people have had financial need. And the Benevolent Fund always provided that assistance indirectly. We never just handed people and say, here's a wad of cash, go and spend it as you will. We always were trying to take the bills from them and say, listen, we'll pay this directly for you because we care about you and we love you. And we always would say to those folks, at least I always try to say it, this is not a loan. You don't have to pay us back. And number two, it's not from me and it's not from the elders. It's from your church family. People who have been blessed by God and who want to be a blessing to the people in their church family. Now I would like to again say, the Benevolent Fund continues on as a way of expressing a loving concern with other members of this church family to those who are suffering shortages from time to time. But I want to also want to add, and, and people have been giving to it faithfully over the years, and I think people will continue to do so because I think we are a, a church filled with grace on some level. I want to encourage those of us among us who sometimes are reticent to admit that we are in need because somehow those needs had to be made known within that church family. And given the, the size of those crowds, we had 5,000, remember we said beginning of chapter 4, 5,000 men plus women and children. We're looking at 10, 15,000 people. How did those needs become known? Somewhere that had to be acknowledged. Somewhere that had to come and be made uh, uh, known to the leadership. And so I would just say, I want to encourage those of you who face a financial shortfall at some point in your life, humble yourself. Make your situation known, your needs known. Your brothers and sisters in Christ have been blessed by God. They want to bless you. And what I want people to know is that you're not alone in your crisis. Sometimes that's the way we tend to conclude. Oh, no, I'm on my own. i got to face this on my own. I'm in a bail. I'm in a real pickle here. No, you're not alone. God's with you. 
Your church family's with you. I would also like to just say, it doesn't have to be merely through the Benevolent Fund. There are other ways in which God may lay on your heart a desire to be involved in practically supporting those around us who might be in need. I know we've heard many times people have had mailbox experiences. Have you ever had one of those? Where you go to your church mailbox here and you pull out an envelope and there's an envelope that somebody's written your name on it and you go inside and there's just money in there. Or there's some means of a gift card for you and you're like who's this from no name somebody has given it to you and who can you thank you can't thank anybody all you can thank is god i love that mailbox experiences i've heard about them and i myself have received those myself over the years there are many ways in which it happened for us when our children were growing up we, we didn't have a lot of money at the time we were trying to do the best we could with what we had we were blessed to have what we had we were we had our basic needs met for sure. But people in the church would give us used, gently used clothing for our kids. Oh my goodness, what a blessing. What a blessing. You talk about helping to stretch a budget. The kids grow out of clothes faster than, I mean, as soon as you get it for them, like next thing you know, I can't wear that anymore because the wrong season or whatever. You know, there's always something going on changing. I thank God my wife kept track of their clothes because I was overwhelmed. I'm not good with keeping track of that stuff. But even there were people in our church who would say, we're going to come and watch your children for you and babysit so you could get off and do what you ever had to do. I do it because I enjoy it. I love it. And I'm just here to help you. What a blessing. What a blessing. I would like to see someday our church offer that we have people who can borrow tools from each other and other resources that we don't need to go have our own this and own that. We can share things together and use the resources instead of those. We can now invest those in other people's lives and ministries and those kind of things. Give rides to people who don't have cars, whatever it is. There's lots of practical ways to do this. We see it happening. Let's continue to make it happen more and more. One final thought here. I couldn't get through the text without noticing the verse that says there, um, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them all. This outward display, there's an outward display, point number three, of this kind of gracious fellowship rooted in the gospel. See, when the Spirit of God leads the people of God to fully surrender, to adopt this kind of stewardship mentality, it moves us to love people as Christ loved us. Watch out. When that happens, watch out. Because the church is making a difference in not only people's lives here, but it's going to be spilling over into other places, into the community. Other people are bound to notice. And I've heard many a story of people coming back to me over the years when they've received help from the benevolent fund, let's say, let's say for example. And so they've come back to us. They've been in crisis. God has helped them through that crisis. They've come saying, thank you for this generous gift that the church has given us. And we have been able to see our families or our friends just marvel at the kind of generosity that this church family has shown to us. It's a chance to brag on Christ. It's a chance to, to make known the glory of the grace of God working in people's lives who are not just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about others that are in their lives. So the church will put on display the God-glorifying gospel living. Not a needy person among them all. What a wonderful testimony that church had, isn't it?
When any church's membership truly cares for each other with that kind of generous, sacrificial, tangible expressions of love, they're going to see what? They're going to see what? The power of the gospel continue to make a difference beyond even where they are. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Just keep going forward in the text here. And notice that because of the kind of love and generosity and the kind of dynamic in the church there, 514, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. I think it's partly because of this testimony of the kind of genuine love that these people saw, the unselfish love in action. It's a powerful dynamic. And I would also say, I wonder if it contributed to, going back to chapter 4, Verse 33, I wonder if that's part of the great power that was involved in reaffirming the message of the resurrection of Christ and proclaiming Christ being raised from the dead, is that when they spoke about it, they're now seeing the evidence that Jesus is working powerfully in people's lives, taking them from just becoming consumed with themselves to saying, no, we're concerned about the, 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 the making sure that everyone among us is well cared for and that we share this kind of family dynamic among the people of God. That kind of sharing, that kind of community and fellowship and koinonia, if you will, is what gives credibility to the gospel. And that's why I'm going to clo close with this quote from Derek Thomas, in which he sets us up for next week, because there's going to be a significant uh, however that we look at next week. But notice what he says here in your notes. He says, nothing destroys evangelism more than the duplicity and hypocrisy of the messenger. The world's only knowledge of Jesus Christ is what it sees in the lives of Christians. And so therefore we say, Lord, give us greater grace in our hearts and lives. What? That we might see the favor of God upon us, turning that into what? Great power in seeing that you're gospel go forward in making in making difference in people's lives here and then outside among people who don't know you and there's great group unity joining together our hearts and our lives together our minds together and that from that comes great caring the sharing of not just our sentiments but the sharing of our resources in a way that honors christ and blesses those among us let's pray Lord, when we think about our poverty, we think about how desperate we were when we first recognized the weight of our sin, when we recognized what our life is like when we we're cut off from you, we thank you that you were willing to send your son who became poor. He was so rich in glory and honor and blessing he was willing to become poor for us, that we who had nothing might gain everything. Lord, thank you for that powerful gospel dynamic. We pray that you would continue to work that out among us as a church family. Thank you, Lord, for the many areas of generosity, the many areas of sharing that go on in this church family, often quietly behind the scenes. We don't know a lot about it. But Lord, I pray that we continue on in a way that would bring honor and glory to your name, and also that there would not be ever a time in which people who are a part of this church would ever feel like they're alone in their crisis. 
or alone in their suffering, alone in their shortages. Lord, we pray that we who have been so greatly graced by you, we pray that there might be grace spilling over in our lives into each other's lives, and that that grace would then spill over into our community in ways of which people sense there's an authenticity, there's a genuineness of love, there's a tangible expression of true oneness and fellowship in this group that is a dynamic that says Jesus is alive. Lord, work this among us, we pray, that we might be a glorious outpost of hope and light in this community. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.